The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law Professor Stephen Wagner, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. It's a fun day today. We've got we're taking a topic that is going to be a challenge to get packed into our one-hour program. It is. I don't think there's any way we'll jam it all in in one hour. We've reached it a couple times before because it's obviously related to the the grand topic of immigration. We're going to talk about sanctuary cities today and whether the federal government can withhold funding to sanctuary jurisdictions and cities, counties, states, and you know, I think, Mitch, we talked once before about this idea of sanctuary cities not really having a clear definition necessarily. So maybe we should start there just to kind of frame it. Well, that's exactly right. You know, and we, we brought it up particularly because, as, as folks know, we originate our program here from the central coast of California. And Monterey County and Salinas, the major city within the county, have both grappled with this issue within the last two weeks. So it's it's not only nationwide, we're seeing it right here in our own backyard. Uh, but sanctuary cities grew from the sanctuary movement back in the 1980s. So this is not a new issue. It has always dealt with the way that jurisdictions deal with immigrants and particularly undocumented immigrants. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, not that surprisingly, Los Angeles was the very first sanctuary city back in 1979. So again, not a new issue. Yeah, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm glad that you referenced Los Angeles, Mitch, because obviously that's a major population center. And uh, the fact that it's nothing new in terms of uh, practices or uh, commitments to perhaps uh, not reporting undocumented immigrants. You know, I think it's interesting that the term really loosely refers to towns or cities or counties that protect undocumented immigrants by refusing to cooperate completely with federal uh, legal schemes or federal detention requests. And we've heard the term, or our listeners have certainly heard the term, don't ask, don't tell type of policy. But we need to dig into this and talk about the uh, collision between federal law and state law and the 10th Amendment police power, certainly. 
You're exactly right, and you've 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 as as always you've zeroed right in because I called it a collision. That was a little <laughs> bit maybe that was a little bit dramatic. Oh no, I don't think so at all. But one thing I will say is that even in your description of it helps understand why it is so challenging and confusing because you talked about jurisdictions refusing and you use the active verb of refusing to participate. Uh, when in fact, many of the sanctuary cities, what they designate is that they're not going to refuse to participate. But even in 1979, what Los Angeles said is they would not inquire about immigration status in a police action. So even in this distinction between whether a jurisdiction is taking a passive action, although that's probably a, a misnomer, but a passive policy would be a better way to say it of not gathering the information versus a jurisdiction taking the active policy of saying, if asked, we won't tell. Even that becomes part of the challenge in discussing this issue. Yeah, it, it does. And, and that's why I think by referencing don't tell or don't ask, don't tell, uh, that adds uh, another layer of kind of complexion or intrigue to it. Because I think you make a good point. Being passive and... Uh, really not aggressively pursuing uh, reports to federal detention centers when there is, for instance, hypothetically, an undocumented immigrant who has been uh, deemed a suspect and then goes on to be arrested for a certain charge, a criminal charge. And, of course, those are the cases that are getting a lot of the attention, certainly in San Francisco. Um, I did work in San Francisco for a, a number of years, actually, and... Uh, worked as an intern in the DA's office. And uh, I don't know if you've worked in it. Have you worked in a sanctuary city, Mitch? I know Salinas is probably one example. Well, it would be one example. Uh, well, we've got a sanctuary state in California. Well, that's true. So. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> so we're all, we're all within one of these jurisdictions, whether we like it or not, with California being one of the four states that adopted sanctuary policies, California, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Uh, but, but you're actually right. So this... It's hard for people to understand it, but the very first thing you said is probably one of the biggest issues, which is there is no specific definition and of what a sanctuary city is or is not. More times than not, it's a policy statement or a political statement that a jurisdiction wants to make, and it may or may not actually have any legal effect. But, but Stephen, I'll circle right back around quickly on that and say that is one of the problems that I think we're going to see in the attempt to enforce President Trump's executive order on sanctuary cities, because all through that executive order, there is a concern, a legal concern, I'm not talking about the political concern, a legal concern that it's overbroad and not well-defined, and it uses uh, terms that, that don't really fit what you and I would expect to find in legal definitions. And I, and I have to point out that that appears to be the clay feet of the other immigration executive order that the president has just recently, again, had put in a temporary restraining order or a temporary restraint by the federal judge, so it's not in play. So a lot I just dumped out there. Yeah. But words matter. In they the do. matters. They do, yeah, and especially when we're talking about, you know, the possibility of the federal government withholding funding to 
sanctuary jurisdictions. And I think as we framed as part of our lead for this program, Mitch, we talked about the domestic battleground over immigration policies and how will that play out. And certainly when the gauntlet is thrown down in the form of withholding funds, people come to the table, don't they, Mitch? Well, that's, that's exactly right. And we've, we've seen there are 34 jurisdictions that have filed, uh, have joined in a federal lawsuit in Santa Clara County, right here in our, our northern neighbor. Uh, and as I mentioned, Salinas, the local city here, and Monterey County have both joined in amicus curiae filings, with friends of the court filings, with that federal lawsuit attempting to block the executive order from doing the, the very specific part you just mentioned, which is withholding federal funds across the board from yeah, so those jurisdictions that the federal government is designating as sanctuary jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah. so it really, if we looked at it in terms of, uh, and then we can start, I'll start and try to put it in play this way, the uh, the threat of withholding the federal funds really has a message that to me is participate or risk not getting funding. That's exactly almost right. almost ultimatum like in the in the it's, way it appears to be drafted. And Mitch, why don't you can you you want to set up the the local flavor first and talk about Salinas and Monterey? Sure. Well, the city of Salinas, which is is not a huge metropolitan area. Even the city of Salinas has $10 million or more at stake in federal funds that come through various grants. Many of those go to police and fire and other public protection services. So the concern that the city council in Salinas has is that if they designate themselves as a sanctuary jurisdiction, the threat that you mentioned is in the executive order and that was repeated this week by Attorney General Sessions is that that $10 million of pay public safety funding would be withheld from the city. So, okay, so the magnitude there, Mitch, is I think patently obvious, certainly to me, and that is that it will affect infrastructure, perhaps even emergency uh, infrastructure and and funding that uh, cities, municipalities absolutely count on for health and safety concerns. That's exactly, That's exactly right. Things we've also talked about. Uh, federal dollars have been used to do uh, police camps. Uh, we've had many shows on. They're used to buy uh, bulletproof vests for police. They're used for community policing initiatives on gangs. And so, not that Salinas has all of those, but those are the types very common types of federal grant funds that flow to the city in the in the police and fire. And you know, you know, you and I, of course, know the the makeup of Salinas and the importance of Salinas and the Salinas Valley as it relates to the ag industry, the agricultural industry. Uh, it is the breadbasket for pretty much the nation, um, which I think is a significant issue, don't you think? Nine billion dollar industry with perhaps as many as fifty thousand workers just right here in the Salinas Valley. Yeah, not yeah. insignificant. You're right. So, so there's there's the rub. The question is, can the attorney general follow through through the executive order that was was drafted and and initiated with their claim that they will withhold these types of funds? 
and it really circles right back to what you talked about in the opening, the 10th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which is a very foundational principle that says you know, these things shall be enumerated for the federal government and all other rights go to the states. Yeah, and that's a really important, I like the voice inflection there on all other, Mitch. That's really important because that is actually a, a very important clause, meaning that it, if it is not reached and addressed categorically as a federal power, great discretion goes exclusively with the states, and it even goes by the name police power loosely. So the state's police power means that they can govern in all the areas that the federal government has not occupied the, the legal schemes. So That's right. That's right. The irony here is that immigration, and we did talk about this on a, on a prior show, immigration is a federal issue. No question, no argument. It is well within the boundaries of the federal government, homeland security, the immigration forces, the, the border patrol and border protection. That is a federal uh, action. It's enumerated in the Constitution. Nobody questions that. So, so one way might say, well, what's the argument here? Well, in the executive order, the attempt is being made to say that the federal government then can require or usurp local police powers, as you defined it, and say, we want you to be, in essence, an extension of the federal police force, and you must do these things to enforce immigration, federal immigration laws, and that's where the conflict hits. Yeah, and I think, Mitch, and I, th that's a point of contention, that the, uh, the argument that I think has been made by the states or by the uh, proponents of sanctuary cities is that they are, in essence, being forced to be deputized, so to speak, or being an extension of the law and required to act where they would rather not act. You're exactly, exactly. right. Here's the interesting part. If you read the details of the executive order, I find it a bit confusing in their intent because several parts of that executive order specifically ask that the federal government enter into voluntary agreements with state and local police forces for their assistance. Absolutely okay, absolutely constitutional. And then one could read into the other clause of it that says, but if you don't do it and don't comply, we're going to withhold your money. Mm -hmm. so, so I think there's, there becomes the, the challenge between it. Clearly, jurisdictions can choose to participate. They're not prohibited. But one would argue Article 10 of the Constitution would say that they're not required to. They're entitled to remain independent. And the federal government can't usurp those powers by actual, by actual act or by, and here's what we'll have to talk about after the break, is is the threat of withholding money the same thing as marching in and taking control of the local police? Wow, oh, that's a good one. Let's pick back up on that topic when we come back from the break, because I think you make a great point there. There are very apt comparisons there between those two threats. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. When we come back after this short break, we will continue our discussion 
about sanctuary cities and specifically whether the federal government can withhold funding to the sanctuary jurisdictions and whether that is or is not legal and don't go away. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, we're talking about sanctuary cities and specifically whether the federal government can withhold funding to sanctuary cities. And Mitch, before the break, you had framed the issue of whether withholding funds is something that would trigger a vibrant Tenth Amendment argument. Yeah, so here's where it gets complicated. I, I guess I guess it's all complicated. But uh, let let me go back to talk about one other thing we haven't mentioned yet. The basis of the presidential order, which then gives them the apparent or the purported authority to withhold funding, is eight U.S. Code 
1373. It's a federal law that specifically says, it was enacted back in 1996, again, none of these are new laws, uh, that says that uh, no jurisdiction or individual can restrict a government entity or official from sending to or receiving from the Immigration and Naturalization Service information regarding citizenship or immigration status. So there you have a, a very clear, very simple federal law. It's very short. It's not more than about a paragraph long that says it would be a violation of federal law for any entity, government agency, or individual to reject and restrict information from immigration services. So, so, you're, so there's, there's an absolute bar that states that the federal government cannot interfere with the states from deciding whether or not they affirmatively report. Uh, it's, it, there is that. It's other. There's a bar from the states or jurisdictions enacting policies to not do that. Understood. Okay. okay. So it goes even further. There is a second part of what you just said, but that's for, so that's where you start it. And one would look at that and go, "Aha! Argument's over. There it is. Federal law. You cannot be a sanctuary city." Back 1996, the federal law was passed. The challenge, I think, comes with, like other federal laws. There's no second part of that law that says, or what happens. Ah, repercussions. It's just a policy statement from from the federal legislature that says, you shouldn't do this. It doesn't say, and if you do this, the following things will happen. So the, the executive order is an attempt to start with 8 U.S. Code 1373 and say, aha, this is what's going to happen, and what's going to happen is we're going to withhold federal grants from any jurisdiction that's in violation of 8 U.S. Code 1373. Okay? So that kind of sets the table of how they get there. And, and one would say, okay, what's the problem with that? Well, the answer is that when you then start down with the Tenth Amendment and say, but the federal government cannot go an extra step and go beyond its authority under the Constitution and mandate that states do things that, and we use states broadly, so that would be states, counties, and cities, that mandate that they do things to do the federal government's police work for them. And so that's where we now get back to, is that the same thing as saying we won't pay money for body cams if you're a sanctuary city. Right? So that's how the whole thing rolls out, Stephen, and there's not clear law on it as to how this will come down. This is clearly going to end up in the federal court, and we are going to have to get uh, opinions on it. It is very likely the type of thing that will end up in the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think you're, you're right to point out the the gap in the punishment or the repercussion component to it, Mitch, because I think that is true, and I think that is part and parcel of any kind of a constitutional analysis in terms of whether or not the action taken is proper or not. So here's, here's a surprise to everybody. I, maybe not the surprise to everybody. It wouldn't surprise Michael Cohen, our constitutional law guest, but it was was somewhat of a surprise to me. If... Antonin Scalia was still sitting on the Supreme Court, still alive, and still the ninth 
Justice of the Supreme Court. And this issue of federal versus state powers came to the court. There are a number of commentators that have looked at this issue of sanctuary cities, looked at Scalia's body of work, and said Scalia would absolutely stand up in favor of sanctuary cities. Because this is not a Republican versus Democrat issue. This is not a conservative versus liberal issue. This is a federal government versus states' rights issue. And Scalia never wavered, as far as I know, from his belief that the federal government has to live within the restrictions of the Tenth Amendment that says if it doesn't say you can do it in the Constitution, you cannot impose it in any other roundabout way. And in fact, in recent years, John Roberts, not a liberal Supreme Court justice, has also come down in favor of not allowing the federal government to use, in that case, it was Medicare funding to coerce, his words, the states into taking certain actions. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see. I've read some of the commentary on that too, Mitch, and uh, it seems like it's been, been going on really since the death of uh, Antonin Scalia, uh, the, the uh, forecasting and the efforts to evaluate what would have happened if he was still sitting. And I think you did, you accurately identified that he is an ardent supporter and was always an ardent supporter of police power and states' rights. So I think that's a very good point. And I think we will we will get back to this topic as we get a little closer to what will or won't happen with Neil Gorsuch's uh, nomination to the Supreme Court, because the, the conversation becomes, well, is one of the strategies that the current administration should wait and make sure that this issue doesn't get up to the Supreme Court until they get all nine seats filled, and and because this would clearly be an issue that might be influenced by whether there are eight justices sitting or nine justices sitting. Right. We've got Neil Gorsuch as the nominee at the moment. He's noted to be very much Scalia-like uh, in his analysis of those issues, although it's not easy to predict at this stage of a justice's career. Uh, I've got to say that with Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, if he does follow the Scalia federal versus state balance. The likelihood is, uh, hear it here first, I got to tell you, I'd see a, a, at least a 5-4 court in favor of sanctuary cities and striking down this executive order as being too broad and violating the 10th Amendment. So, okay, Mitch, we'll put you down for that prediction. <laughs> All right, you're down. You're down. <laughs> the marker is down. Well, that was that was bold. That was bold. I'm going to withhold. I'm going to withhold judgment right now. But you know, Mitch, we've got a couple issues that I think we talked about. And I think we should maybe focus a little bit more. One is this idea of anti-commandeering requirement. Okay. And and that and and the historical underpinnings of uh, Congress's or I'm sorry, the spending clause where. Uh, there can be conditions placed uh, on on certain government mandates. Yeah, that's exactly right, Stephen. And it's there. There are not a lot of cases on this, but there are a number of Supreme Court cases that have addressed similar issues. And in the the words that have appeared to be used 
is something like that. If Congress wants to use its spending power to impose uh, rules or impose requirements on other jurisdictions, it must do unambiguously. And they've also said that they must apply that rule in areas that are germane or related to the actual funded item. That's right. So let me go to the, the kind of a, an extreme. And let's say you're getting a federal uh, free breakfast, breakfast program, a federally funded free breakfast program for your community schools. Okay? That's, that's one of the many kind of programs that get funded by various federal grants. So let's say you have that, and this presidential order, executive order, comes through, and Salinas is told that, among other things, we're cutting off your free breakfast program for primary schools because it's a federal grant, and you are now, they are not a sanctuary city, but let's say they're designated as a sanctuary city. It would appear to me, and it's always you know, dangerous to predict what a court would do, but it would appear to me that if you connect those two previous Supreme Court cases, the Supreme Court would say that doesn't meet the unambiguous nature of the executive order on immigration, and it absolutely fails the germane test. Because it falls way outside of the, the uh, or I guess, the spirit behind the rule or the or the action that's right now here's where it would get much more difficult let's say that a city like salinas is receiving a federal grant for gang intervention and one of the aspects of gang intervention is the belief that undocumented individuals make a, uh, exacerbate the gang problem that they're coming across from Mexico and they're bringing those uh, legal problems with them and they're a, a critical part of creating an unsafe environment for the city and they're using federal funds for that which which let me jump in can very likely be empirically supported yes i i don't think anyone would doubt that and so could that grant be withheld as being germane to the question of enforcing immigration. That's good. Now you've put out two markers there that I see dramatic differences with. That That's good. So th- so one has the, uh, I think you started with the food, uh, a food or breakfast program, Free breakfast right? program for kids. Free breakfast program. And then the other example is one that's got uh, much more of a nexus, I will say. That's what jumps out right away. Yeah, and, and so th- that's, I think, where we'll see the battleground and that it's possible. To, and I'm going to let me tie it back again to the, the challenge that's going on with the original immigration order on the borders. What the current federal courts have been saying is if it's not narrowly tailored and clearly defined and tied to objective data that can be enforced they're not going to allow it to go forward, and that's the basis of which it's being held up by a temporary junction. So if you take that same reasoning, you're going to have to argue that the policies of the administration are narrowly tailored enough 
to meet these Supreme Court standards, that it's unambiguous and that there's a direct tie between those funds and the action under the executive order. And then with the direct tie, the tie analysis, Mitch, always comes the idea of residual impact that may or may not have been contemplated. And that very often rears its head as a, a point of contention also. So those are, yeah, they're, there's going to be a host of issues that I think uh, get on the front burner when the high court interprets this, for sure. No doubt about it. And here's the other challenge that I think, uh, I, I, I haven't read a lot about it yet, but it's bound to come up. Generally speaking, and, and you know this far better than I do as a trial attorney, but you're usually not allowed to bring a case into court until there's an actual harm, whether it's in the civil case where you've actually been harmed or the criminal case. There's a few times when you could get a restraining order to keep somebody from doing something, but those are very narrowly tailored and have to really define imminent, imminent danger, right? That's right. So the cities are going to the federal court, cities and counties, and saying the federal government has threatened to keep some money, not yet designated what, for some reason, not yet designated what? <laughs> the ambiguous claims and whether or not the action's ripe or moot or ready for, for decision. Exactly. So I don't know what you think about that, but I, I wonder whether a federal court is going to take prescriptive action in advance. We'll see whether they, how they define imminence. That's a good point. When we come back from the break, Mitch, let's talk about the issue of whether or not sanctuary cities actually make the areas safer because I know there's a lot of pros and cons discussions there, and I think we should both weigh in on that topic. You're listening to Wagner and Whitaker on the Law over Voice America Radio. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. 
Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have been talking about sanctuary cities, and we started our conversation today about the federal government's threat or potential or possibility of withholding funding to sanctuary jurisdictions. And Mitch, before the break, we talked about shifting the topic to the idea of whether or not sanctuary cities and programs that uh, have a commitment to not reporting undocumented uh, aliens or individuals to uh, authorities, federal authorities, actually makes cities safer or not. I think there's some pretty good pros and cons discussions that uh, flow out of that topic. Well, you're right. You're right. There's, it, this seems to be battling experts and battling statistics on it. There are certainly, there's certainly no doubt that there are individual stories of, of just tragic outcomes where an individual had they been deported uh, because they in, in clear cases where they were had prior criminal convictions, sometimes multiple convictions, and the allegation is because that the city didn't then report them and take advantage of the opportunity to deport them, they then had yet another crime that they committed, and in some cases, this was murder and other violent felonies. That's right, Mitch, and leading the league in that would be the city and county of San Francisco, and that obviously relates to the tragic and horrific killing of Kate Steinle. Yes, so there's, there's no, there's just, you cannot discount that as a, as a, as a fact. I mean, that story happened, and it appears that that consequence of those series of things, someone who had been convicted of other crimes, was it appears would have been eligible for deportation, was not, and then the crime happened. Okay, so we set that aside and say, absolutely true, tragic, and in fact, in that one case, it appears that had that person been deported, then that crime wouldn't have happened. I get it. It's one. Not that any one is okay, but it's one. And so what you then have on the other side are those who argue a more broad evaluation statistically of communities that have been sanctuary cities like San Francisco and L.A., and they show there's no noticeable statistical proof that those cities have more or less crime based on their status as sanctuary cities. 
So you end up with these battling and competing interests. I'm not sure we've seen definitive answers on either sides, but there's certainly enough for both sides to sink into and say, aha, look at this, therefore our policy should be the prevailing policy. You know, Mitch, one of the things that actually puzzles me is the argument in support of sanctuary cities that goes a little like this. If there are no sanctuary cities and undocumented immigrants, individuals, uh, run the risk of being reported to authorities, that that will somehow de-incentivize their willingness to report crimes. So in other words, it has a stifling effect on their ability to report that they may have been victims of crimes. It's, a, it's an interesting argument that I've seen framed in, a, in many different ways, but as you just indicated, I'm not so sure the numbers show all that. So it's, I, I guess what I'm getting at there is I don't know how that manifests itself in the form of proof. I think you're right. I, I think these end up being part of the policy discussion. I don't think we're going to find statistics that will determine that part of the argument, but I do think they inform the policy discussions. And and ultimately, I think that's what sanctuary cities boil down to. It becomes a policy statement of a jurisdiction based on the community's interests as defined by their, whether it's city council, board of supervisors, or governor. And and so I, I, I think that's where we will see the argument continue to be most vibrant. That said, they're forcing the issue through this a number of federal lawsuits to set aside the executive order. So I, I guess we will see it move from the policy dialogue to a legal dialogue here within the next few months. Let me point out one other thing that, that I think you and I have talked about before, and this is one of my concerns about the executive order. There, there really are two different categories, or and let me say, I'm not an expert in this, but it appears to me there are two different categories. There are individuals who come into the United States through legal status and then overstay that legal status, and now they are undocumented, and they do not have, they're not legal residents. So you come in as a student, you come in under a work visa, you come in on any number of legal, you come in as a, as, as a tourist. So that category, so you're framing the category as so, uh, legal permissible entry initially. Correct. And that becomes a critical definition. Agreed. Because then when they overstay, they are still violating the immigration laws, but it's a civil violation. It is not a criminal. These are not criminals just because they've overstayed their legal entry into the country. That's a civil category. Doesn't mean there aren't, there aren't laws that apply to them. and Doesn't mean they couldn't be uh, deported. But they are civil violators. There are others who enter into the country without any legal status whatsoever. That is a criminal violation. And I believe that it's important to make those distinctions because when they talk about the numbers of individuals who are undocumented and creating this risk to our communities. I, I think that if we get back to the statistics, the, the statistics of those who are violent criminals in the second category, 
no one's going to argue with. So if if someone is has been convicted of a of a violent crime and they're in this country illegally, I think everybody says they should be swept up and deported. Period. End of story. It's that when you start moving down the continuum to this other group, many times they're homeowners, they're workers, they're paying taxes, their kids are in school, many times their kids are legal, are, are, are U.S. citizens. These are the mixed families that create such a, a challenge in all of this discussion. And, and the argument is, well, but they're here illegally. The executive order, I believe, does not distinguish adequately between those different categories. And it immediately, in my opinion, swings over to the part that nobody disagrees with. Violent criminals ought to be removed. You know, Mitch, I know it makes for better radio sometimes to have a a big clash in opinions on something. But here we go again. I'm really glad you framed that distinction because I do agree with you. And and it's, I agree uh, on a number of different fronts with what you're saying, um, especially... Uh, because the executive order doesn't reach the distinction. And I think you're right to point out that the two different boxes that you've defined, the one being uh, blatant illegal entry into the country versus permissible entry and then overstay are dramatically different situations. And you've also hit the, the, uh, the nail on the head by referencing the fact that those that typically come in Legally first, I think empirically, I don't have the numbers at my hands right now, but I think empirically you could probably prove that they contribute, they work, they make up a major part of our workforces in cities, counties, municipalities. So that's a really important point to make that distinction, Mitch. And I think if you looked specifically, I I think the numbers would show that those that enter illegally, uh, are probably more apt to commit crimes or have commit crimes and, quite frankly, are maybe uh, already on the run from law enforcement in many cases. So, yeah, you're right to point that out, and it's a definite concern in terms of drafting of uh, something as uh, indelible as an executive order that could potentially pass scrutiny. So I think where both of us would come down on exactly the same point is that none of us disagree that immigration reform is necessary. It clearly needs additional work. It's clearly more complicated than a three-page executive order that lumps everybody into one bucket and then gives these broad and sweeping, uh, some argue, argue coercive uh, policies from the federal government to, Im- to impose on states, counties, and cities. I, I just don't see that as the effective way to do this. I think we do need immigration reform that and parse out each of these critical elements and provide the support both at the federal, county, state, local that needs to do it. Because I think there's maybe more agreement than disagreement on huge parts of this issue. But when you throw it all into one pot and put everybody in there without distinguishing the good versus the bad, uh, that's where I think the the problems are going to lie. Yeah, and you know, I don't know, Mitch, maybe you've seen this. Uh, did the uh, amicus briefs get posted? Are those, uh, can you access those? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I would have to assume yes. It's the it's the federal court in Santa Clara County. So I assume that's in San Jose. The yeah, yeah, the county seat of Santa Clara is San Jose. That's right. So I, you know what? Before next week, I'll take a look. That's you've given me some homework. Yeah, but I just wanted to share because we've done this before. I think the answer is going to be yes. There's a there's a means by which the public can access some of the pleadings, and I and I do. I think it's important that we share with our listeners that it's important to read a lot of the briefings because there's always very good factual portrayals and backgrounds. And I think some of the amicus briefs that come in, as you indicated, friends of the court, they don't necessarily um, become, they're not stakeholders and actual litigants in the cases, but courts read those and they're very often uh, very well drafted, a, com- a good combination of passion and good uh, legal arguments. So it's a good place to go to get some background. And I would also encourage people to go to the whitehouse.gov uh, website and read the executive order itself. It's not that long. It's, I'm yep, looking there at we go. You know, that's a great point. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of people just go to their uh, newspaper sources, and, and unfortunately, you don't get the full picture there. Got to read the whole document, right? That's exactly, exactly right. And I think what they'll see is, it, again, it's not, I'm not trying to just pick on it, although I have great problems with it, but they will see all of the lessons that you and I have talked about on this show of you have to look at the exact words used. And I think what they'll see there is that when an executive order tries to stipulate law by saying things like these things have caused unmeasurable, I'm sorry, immeasurable harm. I, I highlighted that one in front of me here because I, I was going to you know, remind folks that you've told us many times that you know, statutes and penalties have to be measurable, right? And the court can only do things that are measurable. And, and when a attempt of an executive order uses things like we're going to do this because there's immeasurable harm. Yep. It almost argues against its own interest. It does. Thou shall challenge ambiguity. <laughs> right? That's yeah. exactly right. So it's a challenge. This has obviously been a huge issue as we're wrapping up here today, Stephen. Uh, a great discussion. Uh, it's not going to go away. It's not going to get solved. I think as, uh, as we've always suggest, do your homework. As listeners, go and look for, at the Friends of the Court briefs. Read the executive order for your own self. It's right there in plain English. And, and determine from your own analysis whether you believe it appropriately follows the Constitution. Read the Constitution of the United yes, States. That's a good public <laughs> service announcement. That's exactly. All right, Mitch, thanks. Good program. <laughs> All right. Well, as always, we, we remind you that you can hear a replay of today's show on voiceamerica.com business channel. You can also hear it on www.wagnerandwinnick.com. As we suggest to you every week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. <laughs> I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. Oye.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to Oye.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give clients first awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 